When I was young, I, uh, I loved Robert De Niro so much. And in taxi, the movie Taxi Driver, he orders a piece of apple pie with cheese melted over the top. So for all four years of high school, whenever I went to Denny's, I would eat a piece of apple pie with some uh, cheese melted over the top because that's what he ordered when he had his date with Sybil Shepard. I don't even like cheese over apple pie, but he was so cool. I had to eat it because I wanted people to ask me, what, what's with the cheese and the apple pie? Like, oh, have you seen Taxi Driver? No, you really should. Let me, t- let me tell you the whole, the whole movie. <laughs> so... From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Do you have a favorite pie? I like all pie a whole lot. Um, I mean, I could eat any pie at any time. Seriously. (laughs) Except for maybe coconut. Really, you can't mess with a good apple pie. Like, a good apple pie is baseline, good, and at its peak, transformative. Cheese pie, potato pie... Spinach pie, lazy pie. What's lazy pie? Lazy pies without dough. (laughs) Coconut cream pie, lemon meringue pie, and chicken pot pie. Oh, chicken pot pie. My favorite pie is a blackberry pie with red chili peppers because it's really unexpectedly delicious. If I'm going to go pie, it's definitely pecan pie, no question about it. Sugar and nuts. Sugar and nuts, yes, can't beat that. I'll have pecan pie, cold, hot, you know, on the moon, I don't care. Um, my favorite pie is a summer tomato pie because that's the pie that won me the KCRW pie contest in 2013. <laughs> <laughs> How's that? <laughs> I mean, I like other pies too, but that one's pretty good. <laughs> As you might be guessing, a pie is back. After a three-year pandemic hiatus, KCRW's Good Food Pie Fest and Contest is happening on Sunday, April 30th. Once again, we're partnering with the Fowler Museum at UCLA for a full day of festivities revolving around our enormous, stupendous, spectacular, butter-packed pie contest. Bring us your sweet, your savory, and of course, we want to see your best crust. I know when my pie is good when, like, people get up and they have to, like, like dust themselves off. Bakers will compete side by side to woo our 25 judges with your best recipe. Enter in one of nine categories, including one for kids under 10. All of the details are at kcrw.com slash pie. So come on, get planning, get practicing. It's my favorite event of the year. And I really, I can't wait to celebrate it with you in person. Yes, I love pie, but my favorite time to eat it really is breakfast, right alongside my cup of coffee. I've never been much of a dessert after dinner person, so when a self-described dessert person like Claire Saffitz develops recipes for dessert people, I have to wonder if they're for me. But Claire is compelling, and in her latest book, What's for Dessert?, she has convinced me that, yes, there is a dessert for everyone, even if it's just a spoonful of something straight out of the fridge. Hi. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So let's jump into one of the pudding recipes that really appealed to me, the malted and salted caramel pudding. Um, it's it's interesting, you know, it. <laughs> To say that it's cold here in Southern California is sort of a joke to everyone who lives (laughs) on the East Coast. But I have found myself um, making chocolate pudding 
a lot and eating it while it's still warm. It's basically just like thickened, you know, hot chocolate. Um, but tell me a bit about this caramel pudding. It sounds so delicious. I mean, both malted and salted, anything is pretty great. Right. I mean, it's it's fun to say. I love the kind of play on words, the rhyming, um, but it works really well. I love caramel. I love that sugar is this kind of magical ingredient that when you cook it, it turns from being just pure sweetness to really complex and slightly bitter. And it just sort of develops all of these flavors. So I wanted that flavor to be the star of, of a dessert. And so pudding is a great vehicle because it's balanced out by all of the milk and dairy and other ingredients um, and, you know, the, the eggs. So because there is such a focus on simplicity for the recipes, if I was going to ask someone to make a caramel, which is a little bit of a tricky process, I mean, it's, it's not hard, but it involves, you know, paying close attention and keeping a watchful eye. Um, if I was going to ask someone to do that, then I wanted that to be the focus. So it also has this malted milk powder, which not only um, sort of enhances the the dairy, the, the milky quality of the pudding, but also adds something like a little bit savory. So I always strive for desserts to be well-balanced, not too sweet, to have, you know, lots of other flavors and textures going on. So I do, I do love that recipe and it's, um, you know, caramel is like one of my favorite flavors. So it's, it is deeply appealing to me, but I think it will be to many people. And I also love that um, in the making of the caramel, you also call for water being added to sugar, which I just think makes it so much easier for a lot of people. Yes. A dry caramel where you're not adding water first is is a lot trickier. It's a lot harder to get it to cook evenly. So I do a deep dive into how to make a wet caramel. So with that water added, how to prevent crystallizations. And there's photos that you can look at. So um, I really encourage people anyone to try it who loves caramel flavor, but maybe is a little intimidated by the process. In in making pudding, is there any kind of tip you can share with us that will help us maintain the texture and not have curdling, for example, or lumpiness? Right. A little bit of curdling is normal. And in all of the putting recipes in the book, I say, you know, if you have a little bit of curdling, that's okay. Just don't scrape the bottom of the saucepan. So, um, you know, because you don't want that to mar the texture. But one of the best tips that I can give is to use a nice, heavy saucepan. So something with thick walls and sides, and that thickness will help to prevent any hot spots like along the bottom and sides, um, and will promote more even cooking. What is a semifredo and how is it different from ice cream? Yeah, semifredos are often pitched as sort of a no-churn ice cream, but it's not really accurate. More accurately, it is a frozen mousse. So semifredo is usually a kind of flavored base. It could be fruit flavored, it could be chocolate, it could be anything. And into that, whipped cream and beaten egg whites are folded in. So it it has a very, very light texture and then it's frozen. So it it really is a category of kind of frozen mousse, Um, but it is sort of a dupe for ice cream. It has a similar kind of texture as it melts and as you eat it. Um, So I have a couple of semifredos in the book because I'm not someone that really makes ice cream at home. I don't even really have an ice cream maker. And for my money, like I just go buy Haagen-Dazs. Like my ice cream is never going to be better than Haagen-Dazs or any of the, you know, a hundred different amazing, you know, ice cream brands that you can get at the store. 
But semifredo is something different. And I think it really does satisfy the same kind of itch. It's a great thing to make ahead because you just stick them in the freezer the day before. And then, you know, if you want to serve it, all you can do is you can scoop it like ice cream or cut it into slices. Um, and I think it's pretty impressive looking. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's like a loaf of ice cream. Right, um, right. It is a loaf. Yes, exactly. What flavors what what flavors do you are you playing within each of the semifredo recipes? One of the fra- flavors is fruit. So I do love fruit desserts and I'm always trying to incorporate seasonal fruit as much as I can into my desserts. So one of them is um, Concord grape. I love grape season. Concord grapes to me are one of is the most piercing kind of pure flavor that I, you know, can ever get from a fruit, but they have these stubborn seeds in them. So anytime I'm doing something with Concord grapes, I'm usually cooking it into like a curd or, you know, straining it, making a puree. And so this recipe starts by making a Concord grape curd. It has some lemon juice in it for acidity. And then that becomes the base of the semifredo. So, um, you know, so you're you're folding in the whipped cream and egg whites. And it's lovely because, the conquer grape is, is such a sort of strong flavor and um, everything else kind of mellows it. So I love that one. And then the other one is a coffee stracciatella flavor. So if anyone's had stracciatella um, gelato, that's where they stream in melted chocolate and it makes these little, stracciatella means like little shreds in Italian. And so it makes these little fine chips of chocolate. And I love that texture because when you get super fine chips. They just melt on your mouth. And coffee is one of my favorite flavors in the entire world. I'm a huge coffee lover. And I think of if I had to have a frozen or chill dessert, I really want it to be coffee. So um, I also love that one as well. And I just scoop that like ice cream, but it's just, you know, something a little different. And I have to say for ease in the, in the, in the cookie section of the book, the phyllo cardamom pinwheels are, are just look pretty impressive. And I definitely want to make those. You know, I'm about to make those tonight, actually. I have a couple of boxes of phyllo thawing in my refrigerator right now. And that that recipe came about, that idea came about because I love palmiers. So those are those big, like, elephant ear cookies that are made with pastry. Um, they're kind of, like, heart-shaped. And I love them. I love how flaky they are. But flaky pastry is not the easiest thing to produce. And so I started thinking about that with phyllo because phyllo is so incredibly flaky and tender and it's, you know, doesn't have to stay cold the way that pastry has to stay cold. So that cookie is kind of my answer to to a palmier, but no pastry required. And they just have this incredible shattering quality when you bite into them. They bake up reliably golden every time. It's it's just a great use for phyllo. And they're stunning because of the way that the layers become a pinwheel is much more of a pinwheel than any other kind of dough could give you. And one of my favorite qualities of that cookie is because so the, the layers are separated by melted butter and there's some sugar that's layered in as well. And what I love is as they bake, the sugar and the butter sort of intermingle and form a kind of glassy layer of caramel around the cookies. So they are very impressive looking And, you know, it's the kind of cookie that visually you really want to take a bite because you know how flaky it's going to be. Well, the book is quite special and quite beautiful, too. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's Claire Saffitz, the best-selling author of Dessert Person and host of the Cookbook Companion YouTube series, Dessert Person. Her latest book is What's for Dessert? You can find a recipe for her coffee stracciatella semifredo on our website. That's kcrw.com slash good food. Coming up, don't panic. 
Those two words of advice led to an online cooking show and cookbook for Noah Galutin. He shares tips on how to relax and actually enjoy cooking dinner. Next. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Good Food. We first met Noah Galudin as a food blogger. Then we knew him as Kevin Bloodsoe's business partner in his Bloodsoe's barbecue empire. He went on to co-author cookbooks with chefs, but his latest project is more personal. In March of 2020, when Noah and his comedian wife, Eliza Schlesinger, were cooped up at home, they launched an Instagram and Facebook Live cooking show and branded it Don't Panic Pantry. They thought it would last two weeks. Well, it ended up lasting 250 episodes and spawned the Don't Panic Pantry cookbook. Hi, Noah. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So I'd love to, to talk about the pantry because I really... Uh, gosh, I lean so hard on mine. What are your absolute must-haves? I mean, it's expanding. And I think, you know, living in a city like Los Angeles, you start your pantry expands with all the different cultures and cuisines that you start to explore and learn about as you get older and, and, uh, and you know, cross the 405 if you grew up in Santa Monica. <laughs> but, um, you know, so for me, growing up, it was cans of tomatoes, olive oil, garlic, dried pasta. And that's now expanding into things like you have, I have soy sauce, I have tahini, I have uh, lots of lentils and beans, I have uh, gochugaru, I have, you know, all these kinds of things and they kind of keep growing and expanding that way. And, you know, just like in the book, a lot of these kind of jars and bowls and cups start to spill into each other over the course of cooking at home. And you kind of start to have your version of, 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 of your own pantry. But uh, I really try to make sure anything that is called for in the book gets used again in other ways. So it's, I always hate when you buy a cookbook and you buy some crazy exotic ingredient and then it just sits in your pantry forever until it goes bad and you, and, or next time you move and you finally throw it away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've all done it. So let's, let's talk about breakfast. Um, yeah. I, I was really pleasantly surprised to see Kichiri. the rice and lentil portrait. I really love, and I, I actually forgot about it. It's so good. It's so good. Can you describe it and tell us how you you learned about it and what we need to make it? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I mean, obviously, there's there's a million versions of this, and there's everyone probably has a different way that their family makes it, they make it, or whatever it is. Um, but uh, the basics of it, in some form, are usually uh, rice and lentils. Uh, with some kinds of spices, often ghee, kind of fried up all together and then slow cooked. And uh, usually there's turmeric in it. And it's this very comforting spiced, kind of generally very mild porridge that then you can add all your condiments of whatever you like into it. And the way that I actually learned about it, weirdly enough, is uh, up in uh, in the Santa Cruz Mountains over by like San Jose, like the Watsonville-Gilroy area, there's this old intentional community that's been around forever, started by, uh, by Babaji, Babahari Das, called Mount Madonna. And my dad, who was a hippie, 
used to take my brother and I up there all the time as kids growing up. And we would go and he and Babaji would give us spiritual names and all that kind of amazing stuff. And my brother ended up living on the mountain for about 15 or 20 years. Uh, we actually recently moved off of it and was a kind of staple of the community there. He was a pujari of the Hanuman temple. And obviously Indian food is a big part of the community up there. And so my brother got very, very good at making kitchery all the time in the community kitchens there and in his home. And so he started making it for me all the time. And so it's actually my brother's recipe for for kitchery. So it's his uh, his name when he lived on the mountain was uh, Shantam, and it still is to a lot of people. Um, and so it's Shantam's kitchery. Um, so I'm going to admit to making clam sauce last night with frozen clams in the style that I used to make like when I was in college, before I actually had an Italian restaurant. <laughs> and it was so good. And I used a little bit of, of, of soy sauce in it. And you have this butter shoyu clam sauce that sounds like it's cousin. Yeah. Look, I adore a classic vongolet where I do it with, you know, tiny little fresh clams like cockles or manila clams. And it's all about the the pure clam liquor that comes out of it, infusing it into the pasta, soaking it in. And it's one of my favorite things in the world. But for this book, you know, it's a pantry cookbook. So I wanted to see if I could come up with a version that uses canned clams that uh, I would love and is a much faster, easier version. The trick to it, because, you know, canned clam juice doesn't taste as good as fresh clam juice. So rather than try to mimic, you know, the classic Italian versions that I've made in my life, I wanted to just ramp up the flavor, play with that brininess. So there's butter and soy sauce and lemon juice and parsley and onions and clams and clam juice. And it all just comes together super fast. And it's this kind of like umami, rich, briny, fun, fast pasta. And it's, it's, it's like way better tasting than it has any right to be for how fast and easy it is. So good. <laughs> it's really the best. Good. Also, like butter and soy sauce is like one of the great combinations in the world. Uh, and I just, I will always love it. And then you throw some clams in there and what's going to go wrong? Yeah, so good. So you mentioned your wife already, who is comedian Eliza Schlesinger, who also features in the book. Tell us about an interaction she had with um, with your uh, your viewers of this what, what turned out not to be an off the cuff video series. Um, a particular recipe from her that's in the book that got a lot of traction. I mean, I think you're probably referring to the tomato sauce, maybe. Yeah. Um, so how how does her tomato sauce differ from yours? So over the course of this process, I saw how people's tastes are so personal. There's so much variation in what people like and don't like that I wanted to have malleability. Like there are three different versions of broccoli pasta in the book. And for the pasta sauce, my version is much more chunky and rustic and designed to be kind of made in the time it takes to boil water and cook pasta. And hers is uh, a much more kind of emulsified, smooth, fattier restaurant style sauce. And that one's fully blended. And like for her, it's like she wants to eat like a mountain of, of like angel hair pasta with a fully blended tomato sauce and like a amount of cheese that would make uh, Italian people uh, blush. And, you know, mine is is a slightly more kind of homestyle version. And so that's those are the kind of two versions of that. And I just think it's really fun for people, hopefully, to try both over the course of cooking through this book and see which one they like better for themselves. I would love it if we could kind of talk about those three different broccoli pastas. Because yeah. one of the things that I think is so key for people to learn is how just a little tweak can can completely change 
the outcome of something that has very similar ingredients. So yeah, maybe absolutely. start for start from the simplest one, maybe the one with anchovies, and and then end with the sausage one. Yeah, I mean the simplest one is this the vegetarian one, just basically garlic, olive oil, broccoli. Throw some fresh herbs in if you have them. And it's a very like, you know, some dried oregano. It's really has those kind of earthy flavors, very satisfying. Um, but then when you do it with anchovy, which, you know, I think a lot of people think they don't like anchovy, but they just don't like the idea of it. And anchovy is also like one of the most sustainable, nutritious things you can possibly eat. So I really recommend doing it. It adds this deep kind of umami flavor and it kind of fries up into the garlic and it almost just dissolves into the pasta and gives you this, this kind of sense of, of depth and complexity that you can't quite put your finger on. And then the other side of it is the one with pork sausage, which I mean, to me, you know, I, I know I keep saying there are certain great combinations in the world, but one of them is uh, pork sausage and broccoli. And I just, it's like, because, you know, broccoli just eats fat. Broccoli loves fat. And eventually it releases it back out. But when you fry it up in like that sausage fat with some white wine and all that stuff, it just, it does, it does some beautiful, wonderful things. And I love like a really heavily cooked broccoli pasta, like not the pasta, but the broccoli itself gets almost like pesto-like in consistency. And you just get all these like deep kind of muddy, porky flavors and then put like a, just like a sharp pecorino on top. And like, that's, that's like, uh, that makes me very happy. This has been so much fun, Noah. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure, and uh, I can't wait to, to tell everybody I'm, uh, I'm on KCRW. That was Noah Galutin, author of the recent Don't Panic Pantry Cookbook. You can find a recipe for the kitchery we talked about, along with Noah's recipe for making ghee on our website. Just go to kcrw.com slash goodfood. What I love most about culinary history is how deliciousness is created over and over again from difficult circumstances. There's a war or a famine, and people are pushed to move from their home and rebuild a life elsewhere. The food and ingredients are different, but they maintain a familiar taste thread that carries their people forward. London-based chef Farouk Talati is Parsi. He embarked on a project to learn the cooking of his ancestors. His new book tells the story and shares the flavors. Hi, Farouk. Hi, how are you? I'm so happy you could join us. Could you start by sharing the Parsi origin story with us? The Parsi people, they're a community that follow the, the Zoroastrian faith, and the Zoroastrian faith is one of the one of the oldest monotheistic religions dating back nearly 3,500 years now. And around the 7th century in Persia, which we now know as Iran, there was an Arab uprising and um, the, the Zoroastrian community were persecuted and it was a case of, you know, convert to being Muslim or to leave the country or face an uncertain future. So a group of the Zoroastrians um, got on ships and they sailed across the Arabian Ocean and hit the shores of Gujarat in India. And over a few decades, they finally found um, a village to settle in. And they settled in this village in Gujarat, just by a, a town called Surat. And these people were known as the Parsi people, or the, those that came from Persia. And that's kind of the, the beginnings of the Parsi community. I find the connection so interesting because I've always thought of Indian cuisine and Persian cuisine as being cousins, with the Persian side being very herbal and the Indian side yeah. being very spiced. 
Absolutely. That's the beauty of, of Parsi cooking is the fact that from our origins, we have all this kind of dried fruits and subtle spicing and saffron and rice and pulao's and gently stewed meats. And then when we kind of arrived in India and hit the shores of Gujarat, that kind of melded in with the, the fish and the coconuts and the harsher spices and chilies. And that's what makes Parsi food so wonderful. It's this gorgeous mix of these two amazing cuisines coming together. How familiar were you with Parsi cuisine before you embarked on this cookbook project? Quite familiar. I mean, it's something that's always been in my background. It's always been there as a, as a kid. My first trips to India started at the age of six, and that's when I was really introduced to who I was, who the Parsi community are in India, and of course, the amazing food and that amazing culture. Um, so it's, it's always been there since a young child and tasting delicious dishes like the patrani machi, which is the fish steamed with coconut and mango in a banana leaf. And the gorgeous kind of stews and braises like the dansak, the lentil gravy, kind of mutton stew and the amazing rice dishes. So they've always been there in my background. When I lived in London with my mum and dad, um, the cooking wasn't so parsi. It was parsified. My mum will always say that she parsifies a dish. So, you know, there'd be a subtle nod to it, maybe with some spice mixes that she'd use or maybe some ingredients that she might have been able to get her hands on. But it was pretty much um, very European-style cooking at home, but just with these parsified twists to it, as my mum would say. But then as the years went on and I had more frequent trips to India, my kind of motive on those trips was always to eat as much as I possibly can and discover new foods and go to all these Parsi and Irani cafes and try all the delicious foods and just really immerse myself in all of it. Tell us about Soho Parsi Curry Night and its inception. Absolutely. So working as a chef, a friend of mine, Terry, we always used to go and sit outside this cafe in Soho called uh, Maison Berteau. It's a very old patisserie. I think it started in about 18, 1890. It started and it's still going to this day. And it's run by this wonderful woman called Michelle. And she's a beautifully kind of charismatic and energetic character. We were sitting outside one day and she was picking our brains, myself and my chef friend, about some dish or the other or something that she could put in her counter. And I heard this music coming from downstairs. And I didn't know there was a downstairs originally. And I said to her, oh, you know, have you got some speakers put in? You know, where's this music coming from? And she was like, oh, no, don't be silly. There's no speakers here. She said, there's a three-piece jazz band practicing downstairs. And then she grabbed me by the arm and she dragged me downstairs to this very kind of intimate long room painted red with gorgeous art on the wall. And there in front of me was a three-piece jazz band practicing. And I said to her, you know, this is an amazing room. What do you do here? And she said to me, you know, not much, but I'm, I, I want to start using it more. I want people to come down here more. And we kind of put our heads together and I said, well, why don't I, you know, cook some Parsi dinners upstairs in your kitchen and we can serve them down here. And that's where it all started. That's such a great story. And, and from those, those nights of, um, of making these special Parsi dinners, what dish has emerged as being the crowd favorite? It has to be dansak. Everyone absolutely adores the dansak and rice and all the accompaniments that go with it. It's undeniably tasty. Um, the rice that's been steamed off in caramelized onions and jaggery and caraway seeds, it's just so savory and fragrant. And the deep, rich gravy of the dansak with the mutton that's been braised in it for hours and hours until it's tender and falls off the bone. So dansak always seems to be the winner there. And second, second hot favorite is Patrani Machi, which is a fish baked in banana leaf. 
So I think that one of my favorite photos in in the book is the one of the large spice grinder. It's holding vessel packed with all those little spices and the powder spilling out. So can you describe the Dansak masala? Because it's so unusual and it is such a beautiful way of, of explaining this merging of Persian and Indian cuisine. Yeah, it's a very... It's a very complex spice mix, but it's um, it's definitely one that's a sum of all its parts. There's about 15, 16 different spices in there, and all in varying kind of um, quantities as well. And some are slightly obscure, but there's nothing that you can't really get a, a good Asian supermarket. I think the Persian dried Persian lime is about as as kind of racy as it gets in terms of trying to find an unusual ingredient there. But I kind of refer to it sometimes like tongue in cheek as just like a curry powder. And I hate that term, to be honest. And I hate the term curry in terms of what is curry. But the most easy way to describe it is uh, it's like a curry powder. But it's, it's so universal and it has so many different uses other than making just dansak. So I make this dansak masala once every few months in a big quantity and I store it in my glass jars. And even as time goes on, it finally gets this maturity to it and it mellows out and has different kind of characteristics. Every time I make it, it has a different characteristic. Sometimes it's maybe because, oh, you know, I'm shy about 10 grams of bay leaf here or I've got an excess of cumin seeds, so I just put it in anyway. So it's always got a different character every time it's made. So Dansak Masala is my kind of all-purpose, everyday spice mix that I use more often than not for things other than making dansak. I think today, in fact, I was, I was speaking to your sound engineer and he was saying, you know, what did you have for lunch today? And I had chips, chips and mayonnaise, but it was a bit more than that. It was chips that were sprinkled with some of this dansak masala and a, a mango pickle mayonnaise that's in the book. So it has so many different uses. So now everybody here is going to have to make that <laughs> blend and we'll be yeah. eating chips with it. <laughs> yeah, it's a great all-purpose seasoning. I did get asked a question once, actually, you know, out of all the recipes in the book, which one would you want, which are you most proud of? Which one would you want people to cook the most? And it's not actually a dish as such. It's the dansak masala, because I truly believe if you do take the time to make this dansak masala, it then opens up so many more doors to you. Could you talk about the importance of coconut? to Parsi cooking and, and their symbolism in the Zoroastrian culture? Zoroastrianism uses a lot of symbolism, different fruits, spices, um, ingredients. Fish, for example, is a, is a symbol in Zoroastrian culture for kind of um, life. And the, the time in Persia for the Zoroastrians, pomegranate was um, used in many of our rituals and prayers as a, as a symbol of prosperity. And when the Parsi people kind of settled in India, pomegranate wasn't so common and it wasn't so easily found to to use in these ceremonies and these rituals and these prayers. So we adopted coconut and coconut took the place of the pomegranate in terms of our representation of um, prosperity and and kind of life within the, that, that culture. So yeah, I think that also speaks so beautifully of the Parsi community in terms of how we adopted, how we kind of said to ourselves, well, if we don't have this, you know, let's use this. And, and you can see that in so many aspects of Parsi culture, and especially the cooking in terms of, you know, um, not having what else can we use. And that's how the Parsi kind of culinary history has grown. So when we kind of cross paths with the English in India, the Portuguese and the French, we adopted much of their cooking styles and some of their ingredients and some of their ways of cooking. 
which you can kind of see in the timeline of parsley cuisine. And you think to yourself, well, that's unusual. You know, why is there an egg custard tart that's so pronounced in um, parsley cooking? It's because, you know, that time of us kind of mixing with the Portuguese and seeing their egg custards and their use of sweet custards, we loved it and we adopted it. And same with the coconut. So coconut in the Zoroastrian and also the, the Parsi faith has a, a, a prominence there and it, it represents prosperity. This has been such a fun conversation. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. That's Farouk Talati, head chef at St. John Bread and Wine and founder of Parsi Supper Club. His first cookbook is Parsi. We've got a recipe for his mutton donsak, and yes, the donsak masala recipe is there too. Just head to our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. Want to make sure that you never miss a recipe that you hear about on the show? Then make sure you're following us on Instagram. You'll find excerpts from our segments, links to recipes, and of course, a lot of gorgeous photos of food. Look for all of it at KCRW Good Food and click follow. We continue our Zoroastrian theme in a minute with the story of immigration, assimilation, and finding identity in a jar of thick, creamy yogurt. White Mustache founder Homa Dashtaki is with me next. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Homa Dashtaki was born on January 31st, 1979, the very day that the Ayatollah returned to Tehran and which marks the beginning of the Iranian Revolution. When her family immigrated to California, she worked hard to assimilate, eventually living the, quote, American dream with a Cornell Law School education and a six-figure salary. During the recession of 2008, she reconsidered her path. Re-embracing the community achieved in the Iranian village her father was from, the two of them began to make yogurt together, which finally provided a sense of belonging in America. The irony is not lost on Homa. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I have to tell you that I love your yogurt so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I feel really lucky that because of Italy, we get to eat it. Yeah, well, I feel very lucky because of Italy. We get to make it in California. So yeah. I'm I'm glad you like it. So you write that as a teenager, you were particularly averse to helping in the kitchen. But as you grew, cooking and food became kind of like tools in helping you make sense of your Iranian identity and history. Could you talk a little bit about where you're from and your childhood? Yeah. So I grew up in in Iran until I was seven, and then we immigrated here. And I think there was this stubbornness or this like self-rejection of certain parts of myself as I looked towards wanting so desperately to fit in and wanting so desperately to make friends and wanting so desperately to make sense of myself that like a lot of the foods that, you know, were comfort foods that kind of get into your skin and in your bones as a child, like yogurt or bread or rice or cuckoo or osh, I turned away from those for a long time. And then as I grew older and as life gets more complicated and more real, you just like your body gravitates towards those foods again. And that's how I felt that, you know, this 
thing that had always been in the background humming from my heritage showed up so prominently as an adult. And you you didn't only come from Iran um, to America as an immigrant, but you're from a particular cultural group in Iran. Yes. So my family is of the Iranian Zoroastrian faith and culture. My parents both originate from Yazd. And when we immigrated here, you know, the phrase birds of a feather a flock together, there was an enclave of Iranian Zoroastrians here in Westminster, California. And we joined that group and they became like family and lifelong acquaintances and support system. And this is where we grew up and why we chose Southern California as our home. Could you talk a bit about the sense of community in your father's village and whether or not you were from an agrarian background or how sort of that agrarian life touched you? Yeah, so my dad is from an agrarian background. It's his influence heavily that really feeds into my uh, no-waste processing of the yogurt. He came from a place and a culture and an economy where every single thing that had nutritional value was used in some way or another. I I think initially where I may have balked at it, now I find it to be such such an ambitious way to look at the world and such an innovative way to see everything as an opportunity, as a food source, as, as as a sustenance. You know, he grew up in an agrarian society that was very arid. Like Yazd is a very desert climate and just how they had water and access to irrigation these were things that I saw as a kid constantly. And even in the summers, we would go back to Iran often. And I would just watch it in the background, kind of paying no mind, not knowing like the richness of the history and the culture and, you know, my own genealogy that I was being witness to. So you eventually ended up in law school and worked your way towards a high-powered career, but became unfulfilled. And you write that yogurt forces you to slow down. What were the circumstances that led you to creating your own business? And tell us why it became the white mustache. Um, It was entirely by accident. Um, Like you said, I was laid off and I ended up, you know, at age 35 living at home with my parents and I was unemployed. My dad was retired And actually, his brother, my uncle, had recently passed away. And so there was just like this cloud of grief over our home. And I had an idea to make yogurt. It was a thing that we had been making forever. It was just one single ingredient. Like I was almost being like lazy and not trying to come up with something more imaginative or exciting. I picked the most basic, simple thing I knew we could make. And I knew it would take so long, like making yogurt takes so long and it's tedious and it would just give us time to sit and be together. And, you know, when we presented this yogurt at farmer's markets, it was the people's reaction to the yogurt and the taste of the yogurt that made me realize, oh, I think we're onto something because uh, folks were tasting it and, and like their eyes would light up and they would react to it 
as if it was like the first time they had eaten yogurt. Um, and I realized this food that I took for granted at home that we made so simply and so artisanally was in fact different than the way that yogurt is so quickly made and put on shelves at grocery stores. And the name of your business? Right. So the name of my business is White Mustache, and it's named after my father's now infamous white handlebar mustache. (laughs) So before we get into talking about actually making yogurt, I would love us if you could talk about how you kind of jump back into your legal hat um, to get the business off the ground and how challenging it was. I hate that you had to leave the state to actually um, have your business take off. Share with us that kind of saga. Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, things look like destiny a little bit. Um, At the moment, it was very, very sad for me to have my business not take off in California. And what happened was that after a few months of selling at the farmer's markets with my father, we were shut down because California regulations do not allow like human hands to touch the dairy while it's being in process. Um, So from the moment it gets heated up to the moment it turns into yogurt to the moment it's put into jars, it has to be mechanized. And our process was entirely the opposite. It was very human interactive. It was very uh, labor intensive. And it, it did involve us getting inv- it, you know, involved in the process to move it to the fridge or to let it rest or to make sure it was incubated at the right temperature. And when we got shut down here, I could have just let it go and I could have let it be easy and I could have moved on to the next thing. But I was... I had found such meaning in this little act of making yogurt with my dad that I was overcome with grief that it would be taken away from me and taken away from me for reasons that weren't right. Um, Like I was making yogurt with milk I was buying in the grocery store. There could possibly be no risk from a health perspective on why I couldn't make yogurt the way I did. And so... A little bit like a crazy person, I went and engaged pro bono counsel over at Kirkland and Ellis in downtown LA. Michael Shipley and Cal Shabaki took the case on. And for two years, I wrote drafts with them, went up to Sacramento, advocated for being able to make yogurt the way we wanted to. And it was after two years that, you know, it was going to be me or the law, and the law won. And so I started looking outside the state for homes for myself because I just knew I had to do this. So you head to Brooklyn because New York has more flexible cottage laws than California, which allowed you to launch a small dairy business there. How did it come to pass that you were able to come back to California and start producing yogurt with Italy and Century City? So they built me the perfect clean room in the basement of that Italy uh, grocery. And I make it right there. Actually, my mom and her cousin, Parveen Afshari, along with Nate and Lena, Luis and Alicia, make yogurt in the basement of that Italy, and we bring it right upstairs and stock the shelves. So wonderful. So now let's talk about making yogurt. One of the things that struck me um, when I first saw your your yogurt on the shelf at Italy was the the number of different kinds of plain yogurt 
you make. Could you start off by describing how European, Greek, and Persian-style yogurts differ from one another? Yeah. um, So the Greek yogurt that we've come to know on shelves is a strained yogurt. That means that some of the whey is, is drawn from it and it's that thick, creamy consistency that you could stand a spoon up in. And there's different ways to achieve that consistency. Most often at home, it's done through straining out the whey. And that's how we do it as well. A European style or what we call Persian style is um, it still has that whey in it. So it's just the pure milk incubated and, and whisked to perfection. I know many cultures other than the Persians make yogurt the way I do, um, but also many cultures other than the Greeks strain their yogurt. So I feel there's a little bit of a turf war happening there, but um, I'm grateful to to not have to explain what Greek yogurt is and that the legwork was done for me by the time we entered the market. So what is the most basic technique for making yogurt at home? Like how many days is the process? I think if you want to make a plain Persian style yogurt, it could be done overnight and and then rest for like maybe a 24 hour period, I would say would be the fastest you can make it. And I would boil the milk the night before. I would cool it down to a temperature that you feel comfortable putting your pinky in incubate it with the live probiotics from a previous batch of plain yogurt, wrap it up in a blanket, let it rest overnight, and the milk will turn into yogurt by morning, at which point I recommend putting that yogurt in the fridge to rest a little bit more. You know, there's very little activity that one has to do except let it just become its most magical version of itself. And that most magical version of itself has a really exceptional texture, extremely smooth. So once it rests in the fridge, if we're eating it unstrained, Persian style, do we need to do anything else to get that texture? I would say whisking. I think that's the secret to what we do is we will whisk the yogurt before we put it into the jars for you. There have been many articles written on the lakes of whey created by by the industrial yogurt complex here in in the U.S. I would love it if you would talk about whey, what it is, and what some of the best uses are for it, and your kind of philosophy about it. So to me, whey is the end result of this magical process. And if you want to get a Greek style yogurt, you'll strain your your yogurt, that Persian yogurt that we've taken 24 hours to make. You'll strain it in a fine mesh cheesecloth. And what's happening during that straining process is that drop by drop by drop, this pure liquid probiotic rich, like calcium, vitamin D, riboflavin rich liquid is coming out. And to me, that's the liquid gold you get at the end of this whole process. The thought that there's pools of it being thrown away to me is as crazy as if, you know, we knew what to do with egg yolks and we're tossing out egg whites and didn't know what to do with them. It's it's just a lack of imagination and intuitiveness and innovation. So once you've made 
the yogurt. What do you do with it? The one thing with the yogurt that I think we do exceptionally well, and I hope that it it catches on, is to have it savory. I know a lot of our flavors even, or a lot of yogurt is presented as very sweet, but savory yogurt is had for lunch and dinner. I've rarely had yogurt for breakfast. It's mostly with a big meal at lunch or dinner, and it's treated like a condiment. Like a third of my plate would be filled with yogurt. It would be rice as a third, a stew as another third, and then yogurt as another third, providing a lot of texture, a lot of coolness, so a different temperature in your mouth. Often it isn't just yogurt on its own. Correct. It's the musir. The musir is the bulb of a Leopoldia flower, and it tastes like shallots. Um, And we rehydrate those and mix it with some salt and put it in the yogurt. So delicious. I could talk to you for ages, but I have have to say goodbye. That is the best compliment ever. (laughs) I'm very touched. I'm very, you have no idea. I've listened to you and your voice for so long and that you read and liked my book is, is too much, really. Thank you so much, Oma. Evan, thank you. That's Homa Dashtaki, owner and founder of White Mustache Yogurt. Her book is Yogurt and Whey, Recipes for an Iranian Immigrant Life. We have a recipe for her Ashimast, that's a yogurt stew, on our website. That's kcrw.com slash good food. The Market Report is on deck. Stay with us. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. Farmers have had a wild winter so far. Jillian Ferguson is at the Santa Monica Farmers Market with a look at what's in season this snowy week in Southern California. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. I'm here in Santa Monica with Chewy Cervantes, who is the chef at Damien in downtown Los Angeles. And Chewy, you have a menu full of ingredients sourced here from the farmer's market. So I love that when I asked you what you wanted to focus on, that you chose the potato. For some, it is such a workhorse ingredient, but for you, it is a star. So tell us what you do with it and why you love this dish. One thing that we know to be true about the potato in Mexican cuisine is that it goes perfectly with masa. So you'll always find potatoes in various menus, whether it's in a taco format sopes, and in our case, we do a huaracha at the restaurant. Um, We're using Alex Weiser's potatoes. First and foremost, I think that's really important to highlight. We love not only a flavorful potato, but the variety of potatoes that Alex provides. With the huaracha, we do something pretty simple. We do a garlic puree, basically a garlic mashed potato that we spread on the huaracha. And what a huaracha is, is what it translates to is a sandal. So it's basically an oval-shaped, thick-cut tortilla. And then we put the potato puree on the huarache itself. And over the top, we top it with a grilled octopus that's tossed in some artichokes and some pickled onions and uh, garnished with nasturtium. A little bit of a play on, uh, one, the obvious masa with potato. We're a seafood restaurant for the most part, and we're very inspired by Mediterranean flavors as well. So lemon, potato, octopus is a very classic pairing in in a lot of different cuisines. And then we add a little bit of chili to it just to kind of spice it up. Wow. So let's focus from the bottom up. The huarache, is the texture similar to like a sope? Very similar. It's almost exactly the same thing. The only thing that differs now is the shape. So a sope is round and a huarache is oval shape. 
Okay. And then the potato puree, how do you get that consistency? What's the prep? Um, so we steam the potatoes and then we pass them through a tammy so they're really nice and smooth and then whip them with a bit of butter and um, pureed garlic. The garlic is, is cooked and confit in a little bit of oil so that way we even get that to be really nice and soft. So the end result should be a really soft, smooth puree for your, for your huarache. Yeah, I've seen huaraches in the past that are topped with beans. Is this sort of a similar consistency? Yeah. yeah, exactly. We definitely wanted to emulate that kind of black bean puree texture. So it had to be really smooth, rich, lend itself to also the strong flavors of the octopus and the lemon and the onions in there. So the potato ends up being a little bit of the star of the dish, even though you have so many other things going on. Wow. What variety are you using? Um, right now we're using the fingerlings. Whenever the magic myrna's around, we use the magic, magic myrna's. Because they are magic. They are magic, yeah. And they are the creamiest and the prettiest color. Against the yellow masa, they look really brilliant with that almost uh, sweet potato yellow that they have to them. So we really love the contrast of that against the purple octopus. Yum. And you mentioned tossing the octopus with artichoke. How does that work? Yeah, so we just, um, we take artichokes, we clean them, we marinate them in, again, some garlic, um, olive juice and um, and lemon juice as well. After the octopus is grilled, we just kind of throw it back into like a, it's it's almost like a chimichurri that we make, but we chop a ton of artichoke into it. Yum. And is there a salsa? Is there any spice? Yeah. So we send the dish off to the table with the garlic um, and chipotle mayonnaise. It's honestly one of the fan favorites, one that we put on the menu, I think in the second change of the menu. But ever since then, we've not taken it off because people love it so much. Incredible. Well, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Jillian. That was Chewy Cervantes. He is the chef de cuisine at Damien in downtown Los Angeles. Alejandro, a.k.a. Alex Weiser, needs no introduction. He's the farmer who grows the potatoes that Chewy was just talking about. And Alex, this has been a wild week for farmers in Southern California. Some have snow on their land. Others cannot make it over the grapevine to get here to the market. It's a pretty slim market this week. Um, what does the farm in Tehachapi look like right now? Uh, right now, we're uh, it looks like Alaska. <laughs> I mean, it, it is. We had feet of snow. Yeah, and and it's piling and it's snowing as we speak right now. It's snowing, but that's that's fine that it's in Tehachapi because it's just good for our ground and recharging our water. So we're excited about it. Yeah, and Tehachapi is no stranger to snow. How do the potatoes deal with the cold and the snow? Well, potatoes like cool weather, but not cold weather. Tehachapi particularly is our fall growing potatoes. Uh, we plant those in the, from May to July, and they come in around uh, September, October months. And we're very fortunate that we, how we have potatoes year-round and we always have fresh potatoes is because we're very fortunate to be growing in Southern California where we have microclimates and different elevations. Our first crops, our earliest crops come out of um, Lamont area or Weed Patch. We have two fields over there. Those were planted in January and February. Those will be coming out uh, late April, the new potatoes, and into June. And then when those are done... We, we harvest in Tehachapi in the fall. In the winter, we were, we're also planting potatoes back down where we planted spring potatoes in August for that August window planting that is harvested for our winter crop. So uh, we're harvesting potatoes nine months out of the year. Most of the country where there are potato growing regions, they'll plant in the spring and get the one big fall crop and store it so as long as they, they'll last. 
So we're very fortunate we can always have fresh potatoes. We have three harvests. And let's talk about varieties. Right now, Chewy said he's using the fingerlings, which I saw on your table this morning. He also mentioned the magic potato, the magic myrna. When are those coming in? Well, we have some planted. We have around five acres planted that they're a quick growing potato. So they should be the first ones in in late April. And tell us why people are so crazy about this potato. Well, it's just so delicious. It is, uh, it's a potato that kind of wants to be a sweet potato. It has a nice fluffy texture. The color of the potato is like a gold, looks like a sweet potato. It's a gold color. And how I discovered it was at some potato trials over the years and that it won the taste off contest uh, like three years in a row. So it kept like that and that's what we're about, flavor. It has everything. It looks beautiful, tastes great, number one. And that's it. They're just delicious. All right, Alex. Well, as always, you are a wealth of information. Thank you. Well, thank you. That was Alejandro, a.k.a. Alex Weiser of Weiser Family Farms. You can find him at a ton of farmer's markets all over Los Angeles. We have his fingerling potatoes right now, and we can look forward to those magic myrnas in April. For the Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks go out to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Elena Shatkin, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and PJ Shahamat. And special thanks to Chrissy Van Meter, Laura Kondarajan, and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleiman, and once again, pie is back. KCRW's Good Food Pie Fest and Contest is happening Sunday, April 30th at UCLA's Royce Quad, and registration is open. We have nine categories this year, including a kids' category, so bakers of all ages start practicing your fillings, your crust, your crimp. All of the details are at kcrw.com slash pie. Of course, I'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Good Food. 